Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, everyone. I am Olga Sugievich, the Head of Investor Relations at Village Global. Today, I'm pleased to introduce my guest, Louise Story. Most recently, she was the Chief News Strategist and Chief Product and Technology Officer at the Wall Street Journal. Prior to this role, Louise spent more than a decade at the New York Times. Her investigative journalist work resulted in a federal program to track high-end real estate buyers, changes in New York City real estate regulations, a federal complaint in the U.S. against a family member of a Chinese politician, and a record-setting Department of Justice kleptocracy case involving friends and family of Malaysia's prime minister, who was found guilty of many charges of fraud, as well as a $3.9 billion settlement with Goldman Sachs. She also teaches at Yale Business School and Columbia. In today's conversation, we'll cover issues at the intersection of technology and media, investigative journalism, and race and money in America. Louise, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. As the only both senior editor responsible for news coverage strategy and chief product and technology officer of a major media company, you have a unique perspective on some of the dynamics at the intersection of technology and media. How do you see technology changing news creation and consumption today? Yes, the role that I played at the Wall Street Journal for three years was actually unusual in the news industry because often the stories, the videos, the content are run totally separately from the technology and the product. But what this was acknowledging, this role that I played um, across both of those areas, is that the product of a news company is the content and the content experience around it. And so um, while um, bridging across those areas for the Wall Street Journal, um, we were able to really bring a lot of product and some technology thinking into news. And um, it really put us ahead on some things like the use of machine learning and AI. For example, um, starting back in 2018, teams there that uh, we led did a number of things, like, for example, using image recognition technology to take photos of our members and turn them into stipple style drawings, just like you see in the Wall Street Journal, and using uh, models that our teams built to alert our reporters when stocks are moving in certain ways that they should go call their sources. And actually, we started breaking stories because um, we had an early alert system notifying a beat reporter that maybe they should put aside that thing they're doing today because there's something over here happening. And um, of course, there's automation you can do around some headlines. You have to be very careful with automation and news because accuracy is so important. So it's not something you just wave in. Um, but we were thoughtful on how to do it. And we even built kind of an early version of related to what you would think of as like a chat GPT, because we built this um, thing for the uh, 2020 election called Talk 2020, which um, you could ask the users, the visitors to our site could ask any question about, you know, what does Donald Trump think about gun control? And then it would query um, all of the transcripts of things he'd ever seen, which, you know, the Wall Street Journal is owned by Dow Jones, which has Factiva. So it has all the transcripts and they were updated in real time and run through um, and give you back answers to questions on different candidates' 
positions. Um, so I think just connecting technology with content creation um, can really push you ahead in making the best, most informative experiences for your audiences, you know, while also doing all the tried and true normal things you do in journalism, like, you know, knocking on people's doors and ground level human oriented reporting. And how about the news consumption? Oh, well, you know, things are very different than they were, you know, when when we were children growing up, right? You know, we have moved out of an era of mass media into more niche media, right? I mean, far fewer people watch the same evening news television broadcast to get their information. People are getting information in real time. People are interested in more niche news, you know, they a lot of people subscribe to newsletters written by a person that they like to read. It's not just an institution that you get news for anymore. So consumption patterns have really changed and kind of the breakdown in public respect for institutions and authorities has affected that because now people, a lot of people follow people and want to hear from people. And that's part of why within the news industry, you've seen the rise of even more kind of brand name journalists doing their own thing, sometimes in a news outlet, but sometimes on their own, you know, with a sub stack or something like that. I can definitely relate to that trend over the last few years. Uh, I think I spent a lot more on media subscriptions, but now a lot more of that budget is individual authors on Substack. And um, so as, as a journalist, um, how do you think of the trade-offs of working for a large publication versus being at, at Substack? Well, I do have a Substack, so just... Just a shout out so people can follow it. It's L and E dot com, And that stands for Louise and Ebony. Ebony Reed is uh, the co-author of the book. I'm sure we'll come to that later. The book that I'm completing now with her. So L and E dot com, And so it's been great to get the experience of seeing how directly we can connect with audiences and how we on our own can grow with a very significant audience of people who come to our newsletter for information about race and money in America. Um, so that's interesting. But I will say, you know, I've also been a senior leader um, at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and I've been an investigative reporter at the New York Times. And for some types of reporting, especially investigative reporting, you need to be at a big outlet because you need to be working with a seasoned um, strong legal department. Because when you have important information that you've uncovered that somebody out there doesn't want to get out and they're hiring high-powered high lawyers, you know, that would be difficult to withstand if it was just you and your substack. And so um, it's a very important role that um, bigger institutions play in terms of protecting journalists and helping them do the best work they can do and standing up for the you know, freedom of the press, which is important for this country. And I, I don't think that can be replaced by um, individuals on newsletters. One of the topics you cover at your course um, at Columbia is the evolution of business models in media. What are the ways that you see audiences consuming media differently today? And how does it impact business model of media organizations? Well, people are following more particular storylines, you know, the interest that they have, they'll go deeper on, they'll get newsletters on particular topics. And 
there is less of a commitment among a lot of readers to just read the whole news report. And um, this has you know, implications for news organizations and editors. It's traditionally been the case that the top editors at news outlets, be it TV or newspapers, um, that they felt a big, and they still in many cases feel a big part of their role is to tell people what those people need to know. But, you know, a lot of people out in the world consuming news want to know about what they want to know about. They're not necessarily looking for that kind of menu guidance. They don't want a set menu. They want um, not really just a buffet. They don't want to go sample at all. They want a personalized feed to them that reflects what's useful to them. And this is a big change for news organizations. It's also a big change for public discourse in this country because it does mean that there's less shared communal content. And it's not as likely necessarily if you're talking to a group of people at dinner that everyone there will know much about even some major things going on in the world. And and so that's, that's a change for society. And as a former executive at Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, you worked at both conservative and liberal media. What do you think about the perceived antagonism between the world of technology and journalism and the allegations that that all big media skews are predominantly liberal? Well, interestingly, the Wall Street Journal newsroom and the New York Times newsroom are pretty similar. So... You're referring to one, you said called one more liberal, one more conservative. And so maybe you're, you know, you're pointing to the opinion pages, but within a news organization, there's the opinion section and there's the news section. And I worked at both. Um, And actually a lot of people who work at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal on the newsroom have worked at both. People go back and forth, you know, these institutions kind of fight each other for talent. So it's the same reporters in many cases and same editors. And so I don't think the newsrooms are so different from each other. And um, in terms of whether news outlets skew, I mean, there's all kinds of interesting rating systems out there that have now been developed where people are kind of lining up news orgs and evaluating the content and saying, you know, where they center. And um, I I think it's also difficult um, to totally characterize the media without characterizing the public. So is the public skewing more one way than it used to? Because then the media can look like it's changed. Maybe it's the public that's changed. And so that's a complicated question. I think, you know, as a senior editor, I always try to work uh, very closely with teams to think about how can we be fair How can we give the information to the viewer or to the reader or to the listener to make up their own mind and include a variety of viewpoints? And I think if you do that, you know, people can make up their own minds and, and that's how it should be. And as an educator, what do you think about media literacy skills and how they should be taught in school? Um, And how should we continuously improve our critical thinking skills in general in the age where a lot of easy answers are provided, sometimes correctly and sometimes not? I think one of the most important things always, but especially going into the future that we're going into is critical thinking. Because as you create technologies that you train to do things based on data and based on past behavior, there's a risk that um, old ways can just be reinforced. 
If you think about, you know, what's happening in AI and ML, um, I think an interesting model of a, a comparison, it's it's a little different, but there's an analogy here, is the 2008 financial crisis. So there were a lot of people on Wall Street who were buying up different mortgage securities and making bets around what was going to happen in housing before that crisis. And they were making those bets based on fancy models. And what was in the models? It was data from what had happened the prior 30 years. So they were assuming the future would reflect the past. And it turned out things changed and it, it didn't predict. And so, you know, I think as more and more things throughout our entire economy, you know, I mean, there's things in medicine, there's things in the media, there's, I mean, every industry has more models being developed to help replicate or sometimes replace human decision-making. Think about those inputs and think about, A, whether they're just going to be wrong because they reflect the past and things change, or B, maybe they'll, they won't be inaccurate, but maybe we want the world to change. And when you just have models that can do things instead of humans, are models going to think critically and say, well, yeah, this is the way we've always done it, but it would be a better world to do it differently. So we need critical human thinking to change the course of things um, because that's how you continue to make the world a better place. So let's talk about um, your experience in investigative journalism. Your work led to the establishment of the federal program to track high-end real estate buyers, changes in the New York City real estate regulations, a federal complaint in the U.S. against family members of a Chinese politician and a record-setting Department of Justice kleptocracy case involving um, Malaysia's sovereign wealth fund. And Malaysia's uh, corruption story also led to the creation of Kleptocrats, which is one of my favorite films of the decade. So what makes someone a good investigative journalist? How do you choose what topics to work on? And uh, what do most people not know about this type of work? Great question. Um, and The Kleptocrats, which you mentioned, um, is a film that I wrote and produced about this 1MDB story involving the Prime Minister of Malaysia, but also involving actors like Leonardo DiCaprio. So I hope people will check that out. It's on Amazon and Apple, the kleptocrats. Um, so the key for me in terms of um, reporting projects that I you know, steer reporting teams on or that I undertake myself is asking a question that it doesn't matter what the answer is. The answer will be interesting. So it has to be a question that's so compelling that whatever the answer is, people would want to know. And the reason that's important is because otherwise, if you have a hypothesis, and then as an investigative reporter, you sometimes spend many months or years in a project and you go down a path, it can be difficult for journalists sometimes if the evidence isn't bearing out that hypothesis. And so it's so much better to go in with a question. It doesn't really matter to you what the answer is going to be, because whatever the answer is going to be, is going to be super interesting. And um, so that's how I've approached work throughout, you know, my entire 20 plus years in the industry. And, you know, going back to um, the earlier 2000s, I covered Wall Street during the financial crisis and did a lot of investigations about what happened um, in that crisis and, and after it. 
And, you know, one central line of questions that I pursued with another journalist named Gretchen Morganson um, as the crisis erupted was, what are the advantages that Wall Street banks and Wall Street firms have over their customers? doesn't seem like an even playing field here. So what are the advantages? So we just spun out story after story, looking at different advantages. And, you know, um, one of those stories we uncovered um, and looked at this Abacus CDO deal at Goldman Sachs that became a big case coming out of the financial crisis and Goldman settled that case. Um, So that's how I approach it. And, you know, for the real estate project, really it first started with you know, there were record outflows from developing countries around the world of money leaving. And um, so it started as a project to say, where is this money going? And I actually thought at first I was going to be doing a project on the Cayman Islands or some, you know, an offshore place. But as I started um, talking with different investigators who work really in asset recovery. Sometimes they're working for people involved in divorces or different things in terms of recovering assets, but they know where assets get hidden. They said, you don't need to write on the Cayman Islands. It may pass through there, but you know where it's ending up? It's ending up right in your backyard, Louise. It's in New York. And so I said, well, where? And they said, well, you know, at the art houses and in the real estate. Um, And so then decided to look at an iconic um, condominium building the Time Warner Center and just said, let's see whose money is behind all these LLCs and shells companies that own here. And whoever's money is here is going to be interesting. And let's see if they all have business records that are, are on the up and up, or if there's any money here from people who have been under investigation or charged with wrongdoing. And so I, and at that point, another reporter, Stephanie Saul, joined me in the project. And we just followed the money trail. And it didn't really matter where it went because every trail was interesting. And so I didn't know that I would end up going to Malaysia in the summer of 2014, but that's where the money trail went. And then when I went over there and found, oh, this money is coming from the Sovereign Wealth Fund and oh, the bankers Goldman Sachs and oh, it's going to these movies with Leonardo DiCaprio. It just got richer and richer. But I didn't know that's where it would go. And I think that's a great way to work in investigative reporting. Well, your your work has definitely led to some important reforms and some um, pretty impressive outcomes. So, um, and it must have been extremely rewarding to, to work on these things. Uh, but what were some of the most difficult parts of these projects? Well, I mean, they're very laborious. I mean, sometimes... I find, you know, projects, if you just take on something that's so laborious, no one else would take it on. You find these interesting insights, but they're laborious. I mean, another project that I did involved all of the state and local subsidies given to companies for economic development. And there was no figure, how much does this cost? And so basically there were like almost 2000 programs in all the 50 states and these different cities. And so I FOIA'd for the records or looked at some, there were some public reports, but you had to go in and find each line item and some by interview and got all the figures to add it up. And it was like over $70 billion a year. And um, so it's sometimes very laborious and tracking the money at the time Warner Center was very laborious. So that's, you know, but if you don't mind laborious, which I guess I don't, um, that's fine. The other thing, frankly, and this, you know, I've seen, 
a lot in teams I've managed is it just can be challenging for people sometimes when they get down a road on a big project it can be challenging to them if they're just not hearing the answer they thought they were going to hear and that's why again i just try to steer them to be kind of answer neutral and 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 inquiry strong what is your inquiry and you're open to whatever the answer comes because i think that's the hardest part for people on big projects if they're not getting the answer they thought they were going to get that makes sense and um, well, at least the first part of, of that problem can probably be greatly enhanced, if not solved, by a lot of the natural language processing tools that we have today, which reminds me to ask you about ChatGPT. Uh, we've been playing around with it. And um, and so someone's reflection was that one thing it definitely cannot do today is ask interesting questions. So two-part question to you. One is, do you use ChatGPT in any way or similar tools like you.com or anything else? And um, And what is the key to asking interesting questions? I'm not a big user of those services, but as I told you, you know, my team, the journal built something from scratch that had some similar traits um, and um, I'm keeping abreast, but for now, I like to think for myself, <laughs> you know, so I'm not a big user, although I'm keeping abreast and um, the, the key to great questions is really listening to the answers. So some, sometimes people think the best questions are you coming with a list and they're all prepared? And that's true. Research, come with a list prepared. But then listen, because great questions are iterative. So based on what someone said, that leads to the next great question. And so it's like having this open mind and listening deeply and then follow, following that trail. That makes total sense. Um, and uh, let's let's move on to your more recent work. Um, you've been teaching a class on race and money in America at Yale Business School and also writing a book on wealth gap today. Uh, what are your reflections on the topic so far and when will the book come out? So we just turned in the full manuscript to HarperCollins and that's really exciting. And so it's moving into the final phases um, and will be out within the next year. So, and if people want to, make sure they don't miss it. They should sign up for our Substack, L and E at sub.substack.com uh, for Louise and Ebony. Um, so the course, um, the course is connected to the book as we were doing in-depth research and reporting on the black white wealth gap from 1850 to the present. We found that we had all kinds of historical research and context that a lot of people in both history classes, as well as MBA curriculums, we're not aware of. And we felt that knowing this history would help people in business be better leaders, better managers, and better financial policymakers. And so I had attended the Yale School of Management and we contacted them and said, do you have a class like this? Would you like a class like this? And the class you know, we developed was a combination of um, history beyond the black-white wealth gap you know, in terms of all different racial wealth gaps, um, as well as a little bit male-female um, income gap and case studies on how industries and companies can change today to be more equitable. So it's related to DEI, but it's a very expansive definition of DEI because sometimes people think of DEI only being things you do and how you hire and how you treat your employees. 
I think it's important to think of DEI expansively. It also should be what products do you offer? What is your pricing on the products? What, you know, so um, who is your customer mix? What is your marketing? But are your products themselves inclusive? Are you, for example, if you're running a consumer product, can a blind person read what's in your product, for example? Um, and so to have a, a strong DEI practice in your hiring, but then not make it so that your product could be read by a blind person, for example, that's contradictory. So we we, we talk about you know holistic DEI across your business. Um, and talk to us a little bit more about the black and white wealth gap. Is it possible to say that, let's say, certain industries have contributed more to it or that perhaps certain industries have done more to help and mitigate some of that problem that we have today? What does it look like? Where does it come from? Well, the black-white wealth gap, which today is um, the typical or median Black family, has 12 cents of wealth for every $1 of the typical white family. So that's 12 cents on the dollar. And I mean, just to pause on that, 12 cents on the dollar. I mean, that is just something that um, a lot of people don't realize, you know, how big that gap is. And what did it come from? Well, it originally came from slavery in our country. And when slavery was ended, enslaved people were freed, but they were not helped to gain strong financial or equal financial footing to white Americans. And so the gap, according to some research by Princeton economist, um, Alora Durenancourt, the gap right after slavery was 60 to one. And it came down some, it came down as black Americans bought some land in the last, in the late 1800s. Um, and it came down, but then in the 1900s and still today, it started widening again and it's actually widening now. And that's because in the 1900s, black Americans, their setback was not only having ancestors who were enslaved. It's also that there have been many, many programs rolled out. For example, um, some of the New Deal programs that were not ruled out equitably. And so white middle class was built in the mid-1900s with a lot of programs that weren't actually as accessible to Black Americans. And so the gap is tied to that. The gap is also tied to stock ownership and capital ownership and white Families are much more likely to own stock than Black families. And since 1980, there was a lot of appreciation in the stock market. Um, so it's, it's a complicated picture. That's why our book is lengthy. It's heavy. It's meaningful. And I think, frankly, everyone out there should read it. Well, looking forward to, um, to reading as soon as it comes out. And a lot of our audience are um, people in the tech world. Many of them are uh, startup founders. And, um, and investors who have to tell their story many times a day. And uh, storytelling is one of the most important skills for us all. Um, given that, um, you know, given your background, how do you think we can get better at storytelling? What is key to great storytelling? Good question. Um, it, people care about people. So, um, for example, our book is told through half a dozen people who you're going to, they're inspiring and they're interesting and they're, you know, um, they're people and you want to see what happens to them. And I think that's true everywhere. So I think for any industry to tell its story, 
think about how to tell it through people um, is the best way to keep um, an audience's attention. And what are your favorite things about teaching and what um, and how much um, are you still involved in, in the type of work that you were doing when you were at Wall Street Journal and New York Times? Do you miss it? What are the parts of it that um, you enjoyed most? Well, with teaching, you know, I, I really like being able to um, have that two-way interaction. You know, you're live in a classroom and um, people ask questions and you pause. And, you know, in a lot of media, you put your work out there and no one's asking you a live question. Now, the internet has enabled some more feedback between journalists and audiences. And actually at the New York Times, one of the coolest jobs I did was running live video there. And with the live video, we were going live from all kinds of news events. There'd be a coup attempt in Turkey and we were live. And the journalist, when you were live, would take audience questions or not just take them and answer them. They would take an audience question for someone they were interviewing and go ask it to the, you know, the subject. So that was great, but still a lot of media is one way. So I really like in education, the two-way nature of the conversation. And I think the media should continue including more two-way interaction. But um, I am still doing a lot of the same types of work I've done at the New York Times and the Journal, you know, hard-hitting, impactful journalism, which I'm doing for my book. And then also I have been doing some consulting for for-profit media as well as nonprofit media and um, I, because I've worked in every medium, you know, video, text, audio, and also run technology and product across the full business and media and run news coverage, I'm a good connector of dots. And so in the consulting I do, I, I work on strategic plans and help people, you know, connect dots across their areas to drive growth. And um, I, I, I like doing that. I like helping people, you know, see things that are connected that maybe they were missing. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that operating at um, at the edges of different networks or um, different disciplines um, makes makes one a much deeper thinker on, on what they see and um, increase your ability to connect the dots, as you say, um, which which is super important as the world is becoming more complex, interdisciplinary thinking becomes key. So that makes sense. Um, and let's finish our conversation uh, talking about one of your passions. Um, you've been passionate about rock climbing for um, for over a decade since um, since we first met. So tell us something about rock climbing that we don't know. What do you love about it? How do you get good at it? I love rock climbing. I took it up for my husband um, because he had done it since he was a teenager. So I've now actually climbed for over 20 years. I used to be afraid of heights. I'm not afraid of heights anymore. And I guess what I, I like two things in particular about climbing. First of all, you're really in nature and often in places you wouldn't have gone to any otherwise. You know, we've traveled beautiful places to climb and you hike in and you find this rock that's in a guidebook. And so I really like the connection with nature and the full focus I give to climbing because you have to be really focused. It's a, it's a true break in a way that other exercise sometimes is not. The other thing I love about climbing, which is actually related to a lot of what we've been talking about here is I like problem solving, trying to figure out, you know, like when you're investigating something or leading a team of reporters who are investigating something, you constantly have to puzzle like, well, how am I going to get that info? If I call this person, will they answer? Or if I go look at this record and you're just kind of trying things out, 
And it's the same thing climbing when you're at the bottom of a route and you look up, there's not always one exact way to go because people are different heights, their bodies are different. And you figure out how for you, you can get up there and you try. And if you fall, you know, I, of course we climb with gear, you're on rope, so that's okay. And I really like the problem solving aspect. Um, well, I'm also afraid of heights, so maybe this this could be my my next challenge, and that uh, what a great way to conquer it. Well, Louis, it's been great to see you. Thank you so much for your reflections um, on all of these topics. We'll include the links to um, to to the works that you mentioned um, in the podcast description. And um, thank you again for joining. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.